This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is another in a series of fireside chats that we've started this year to uh, give all of you and folks who uh, choose to watch this on video later a chance to get to know some of the extraordinary leaders that we happen to be, uh, to be lucky enough to have at UCSF. And I'm thrilled to have uh, Talmadge King here. Uh, Talmadge has a uh, storied history in healthcare and at UCSF from having come uh, to become the chief of the medical service at uh, now Zuckerberg, San Francisco General, although you were pre-Zuckerberg, mm-hmm. uh, to then becoming the chair of the Department of Medicine and then uh, now to be being the dean of the School of Medicine, uh, a role he's had for the last uh, three or four years. So let's start at the beginning and mm-hmm. tell us a little about your upbringing. So I was uh, born in South Carolina, um, and soon after my birth, I guess, um, my, fa- my, my parents moved to Georgia. My father lived, grew up in Georgia, um, and uh, to a small town called Darien, Georgia. It's about halfway between Savannah and Jacksonville. It's a fishing town, it's 2,000 people. Um, and then I, uh, I'm the oldest of five. I have two brothers and two sisters, and um, my oh, we had a very extended family um, with the grandparents around a lot. Spent a lot of time with uh, grandparents in South Carolina, um, and we um, I went from a, at that time it was a segregated. Um, lived in a segregated community. It's interesting. I lived in the most integrated community I have ever lived in was this small town in Georgia. But the school systems were segregated. Wow. Everything else was segregated. But, um, but, but the homes were not. So we all lived in a very integrated neighborhood. It was really funny, because until you were about 12 years old, everybody played together. And then at about 12 or 13, you, you, were, you switched, and then we, 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 started, we went to different schools. So I could actually see the white school from my house. Wow. But I had to go two miles to the. And, black the, and did the kids then stop playing together in the? In Usually the by teenage time. Uh, no, up until up until teenagers, you could still play. Yeah. So people younger than me, after I got to be thirteen or four, they still played together. Oh, shoot, but but it, it just changed. I, and then I left Georgia and went to college in Minnesota, at a school called Gus Davis Adolphus College in Saint Peter, Minnesota, Swedish Lutheran. Uh, are you college. Swedish? Are you Swedish Lutheran? Or? Yes, that's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> perfectly, perfectly possible. I could be from Sweden right. and be Lutheran, um, Presbyterian. <laughs> um, and uh, but I uh, um, went to this small college. I, it was perfect. I actually pretty much only applied to small colleges in the Midwest. There's a story behind why that happened. Um, and then I graduated from Gustavus and went to Boston, to Harvard, to medical school. So before we get to Harvard Medical School, where the idea of medicine come from? Um, I don't actually, people ask me that all the time, and I, and I think I've screwed up the story, yeah. uh, honestly. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I think that really all along, I, when people ask me what do you want to do, I think I probably as a kid said I wanted to be a, doctor or a lawyer or something like that. But the idea that I could become a, a doctor happened my sophomore year at Gustavus. 
when my advisor became uh, a guy named John Kendall, who was head of the psych department. I was a psych major. And, um, and I, in talking about my career, I, I had been interested in industrial psychology. And he said, no, you should go to medical school. And I'm like, OK. <laughs> <laughs> and so I You were pretty, uh, pretty compliant. Yeah, you know, then, yeah. I'm, I'm, well, well, that's the story, too. So mm-hmm. mom's a teacher, dad's a police officer. My dad was a businessman, but he became one of the first black police officers in my region of Georgia. And so I actually was a pretty good kid. I was watched carefully. There's 2,000 people. So anything I thought I was about to do yeah. got to them before I could get it out. So, so I was actually... I was actually a pretty, pretty um, obedient child. Yeah. <clears throat> my, brother, the, my brother wasn't. He got us into a lot of trouble. He, younger or older? Younger than me. Younger. So I'm the oldest. So I'm the one right next to me. I was always pulling him out uh-huh. of something. Uh, uh, but no physicians or nurses in the family? Any no, formative no. experience as a kid with medical stuff? That, or where, where, where do you think that came from in retrospect? Well, well so my Final pathway in medicine probably is related to family. So my brother and, and my father both had really bad asthma. And my brother and I grew up in the same, we slept in the same room, and I would actually remember nights when I was awake watching him sleep hmm. with his bad asthma. And it, you know, it's, in retrospect, I realized that is probably one of the things that drove me down that path. Um, luckily, my, my brother sort of grew out of his asthma, the severity got better as he got older. Um, and so he, um, so he's done, he, both my, my father and my brother. And then medications came along that were very helpful in controlling their asthma. So I think that was, but I think that played a role in me becoming a pulmonologist. Okay. We have to talk about your track and field history. Oh, yeah. And the legendary race. So It wasn't a race. It was, yeah, in retrospect, it was a, um, so Bob, was, so I was in high school. Um, and uh, I fancied myself back then a decent athlete. I tried everything, so I was best all-around athlete only because I tried everything. Mm-hmm. So if you get, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't good at a thing, but I tried them all. And uh, and so I ran track back in the day, um, and we were at the longer short distance. Short. Uh-huh. Look at me. I'm. I don't know what you look like back then. So, it's different. So, <laughs> uh, 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 don't I? Hey, wait a minute. I'm five eleven, and I, you know I wear one hundred and eighty pounds, okay. and, and I'm fine. I I, I I I can say that now. Okay. With, 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 with total confidence. Just, that, so people as, who are watching physician, this on, as a physician, on video, the camera sometimes yeah, changes your yeah, 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 no, and as, as, a, okay. as a physician, you will vouch for me. I got if it. If I ask yeah, that, right. I will write that. Yeah, so, um, all right, so you're running short distance. Yeah, so I, I did. Actually, I ran. I, I, it's it fascinating. I, I tried everything. You know, I tried high jump, pole vaulting. <laughs> I ran. I, I did hurdles. Uh, I did low hurdles. Yeah. All right. Um, and I, I did sprints, but I was mainly a sprinter. Um, and I would win every race that that I ran if one guy didn't show up. Mm-hmm. Right. So, the key was for good eye not to show up. Right. And then I win because <laughs> he beat the crap out of me if he was there. <laughs> and he ran in football cleats, which pissed me off. This is this guy. This is this okay. guy. He was he was he was truly fast. Okay. Um, I would beat him out of the blocks, and somewhere about forty mi- forty yards at that time meters, 
he would pass me and then I would just be in the dust after that. <laughs> but I, so I got to the state championship. We were, it was in Fort Valley. And at that time, um, there was a guy there by the name of Bob Hayes. And he was well, actually. These guys are probably too young to remember Bob Hayes. Yeah. So Bob Hayes was. Bullet Bob Hayes, Olympic yeah. champion. Yeah. Who, uh, in the 100 meters. And he, um, so we were out there. He was fooling. He was the guest of, sort of like the guest of honor. I can't remember exactly. It was like 60. It was, I must have been a sophomore in high school. He, he was by then famous. Um, and so we were, we got in the blocks with him. It was, just, it was like an expedition and got in the blocks with him. And I beat him out. You know, I'm out of the block. That was my strength. I could get out of the blocks fast. Um, and somewhere uh, about a few yards down, it was like a freight train that came by me, mm-hmm. and he just... You heard this. He just, he just blew by me, and it was uh, an embarrassment. But, yeah. um, but <laughs> so it Bob was, Hayes had the title of the world's fastest. Yo, yeah, he was, and he was fast. And, uh, and ultimately for played for the Dallas Cowboys yeah, and uh, uh, wide receiver. He was, uh, he was a great wide receiver. Because yeah. he could outrun everybody. Yeah. everybody. So this is your claim to fame. You were ahead of Bob Hayes for the first three or four well, about, yards. About <laughs> 10 meters. <laughs> no. It probably was even shorter than that. Yeah. But, uh, it, was, it was quite... Amazing. Quite, 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 quite a sight. Um, but, but he, but I, he, he was fantastic. Yeah, he was actually. All right, so let's get back to professional. So you go to Harvard Medical School. Was it? Uh, here you are, a black kid from a small town, going to Harvard Medical School. How did that? How did that feel? Um, it was good. It was okay. <laughs> I was happy about going there. But in um, terms, of you feel that? Were you accepted? The, the culture of the... Of so at Harvard? Yeah. Um, so, so I got to Harvard at a special moment in Harvard's history, especially as it relates to underrepresented minorities. So the year before I got there was the year... So wait a minute. How did I get to Harvard? That's the story. So, um, so in a, I think it was like two or three years before I became enrolled at Harvard... They developed a program called the Health Career Summer Program, which was at Harvard College. And they brought underrepresented minority students from across the country to Harvard to, to, go, to, to go to summer school and take science courses and, and basically compete against each other and then sort of see how they competed with people who were coming there for Harvard for summer school. A lot of people do that to get Harvard on their resume. Um, so they, come, they went to Harvard Summer School and... Um, take courses. So we took biology, um, biochemistry. There were several, some math. I think calculus was one of the courses you could take. Um, And so I went to that program one summer. And when I, and I was introduced, and then when you were in the program, you would be introduced to professors from the School of Medicine and School of Dentistry. And so I actually was connected with Two professors, um, uh, Fishbein and Potter, who are neuroscientists, who are neuroscientists, who are actually quite famous. Um, and it turns out they were they were part of a group who was trying to get Harvard to be uh, more interested in diversity. Um, and I happened to be in their group that I went to visit their lab and got to know them fairly well. And I always credit them with me getting in because they I got to know them. They were on the admissions committee. I think that they vouch for me, um, and so um, in that year, what Harvard d- decided it was the class. I don't know the exact numbers now, but the 
class was like 140 students every year for decades. Mm -hmm. The year before I got there, they increased it, I think, to 160. So they increased the class size by 60, and they said those 60 had to be, those additional 20 had to be from underrepresented minority groups. So they did that so that they would not, so that they could bring in underrepresented minorities and not, and everybody who was from a majority group couldn't complain because you weren't taking away a position from someone else. That was their strategy. Um, and that strategy more or less worked. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the year before me was the first year they had more than one or two underrepresented minority students in the class. I think they had in the teens. The year I got there, there were, there were about 20 of us, 20-something of us, um, who were Hispanic or Indian or um, Native American or, um, or African American. Hmm. And so I was part of that group that, that was in that, uh, in that. So what inspired, you mentioned your brother and the interest in pulmonary. What inspired you to go into academia and to do research as part of what you did? Well, so when I was a resident um, and decided to do... Where, where were you? I was a resident at Emory uh -huh. in Atlanta, um, and it was at Grady. And when I was a resident, I, um, I got convinced to do a subspecialty. Um, my, at that point, I had wanted to actually go to the Robert Wood Johnson Scholars Program, but I was convinced that by Willis Hurst, who was the chair of medicine at the time, that given the changes that he saw happening in medicine, that I should do a subspecialty. So I picked pulmonary and critical care. Um, and when I got to pulmonary and critical care, I, didn't, I had no experience doing research. But as a fellow in the, in the program in Denver, you had to um, spend a year doing research. And so that got me interested in research. Um, uh, and so having done that, I realized that I, that I could go into practice anytime I wanted. I thought I was really good as a doctor. I was very comfortable with patients. So I didn't have any concerns about that. But I said, maybe I was put here to do something different. And being an underrepresented minority, being a pulmonologist interested in you know, generating new knowledge. I thought that was where the field was going and I wanted to be part of it. Um, and I thought that I could do it, um, that I could actually tolerate the vagaries of, you know, the process of, of being an academic, academic doctor. Um, and, I, and then a lot of things sort of fell into place um, almost mysteriously. So second year in my fellowship, I got offered a faculty job um, at the at, VA, at Colorado, at, Colorado, at yep. the VA, and that happened only because two people left suddenly, so they had a need, so they looked at the fellows and they said, who, who do you want? So I immediately got a, that's totally a random accident. Right? Sure. So I, I became on the faculty, um, I did, as soon as I was on the faculty, um, I actually got my first leadership position, I became director of respiratory therapy. So immediately I had 30-something employees that I was responsible for taking care of. So that got me interested in administration and leadership. And, um, and then I was, after a few years there, maybe it was the fourth or fifth year there, they, my research lab was at a place called National Jewish, which is a research center. And so National Jewish asked me to, to come and build an outpatient, uh, an outpatient program for respiratory medicine. And, and so they didn't have an outpatient clinic. It was all inpatient. So they asked me to 
to basically end up leading the process of building and directing an ambulatory clinic. Had no prior background. It sounded interesting. It paid the bills. So I took on that responsibility. And as you've taken on these, <coughs> these leadership roles, did you worry that you were going to have to give up time for your research? And some, sometimes people get this advice that don't take on leadership roles because you want to, at least early in your career, you want to be focusing like a laser on your research, and that's how you'll be judged, and you have to get the grants and produce the papers. How did you make the decision that it was a good idea to take on leadership roles pretty early? The, the leadership roles paid the bills. Ah, okay, very practical. So <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was entirely practical. So what happened was, it's the same. So what I realized is if I took on the, the directorship of the Cohen Clinic, it paid about a third of my salary. So then the rest of it was being paid for by my ability to get grants. Um, and, and I, so I also did it at a time when I had a grant, right? So I had mm -hmm. a glide path in there where I could go from doing this to, to actually continuing the work that I was doing on research. And and it added a lot of more time and effort to my to my work week. So I, I mean, I I basically ended up realizing that I worked six days a week. Mm -hmm. That was just the job. Um, and and at the time, my wife was teaching. She she taught she taught high school math. Um, and so it was a juggling act too. And we had two kids, two young two young daughters. And so it was a juggling act, trying to juggle her teaching career and my now academic career. But at that stage when you're assistant professor, um, you, you know, nobody really knows who you are and they don't really care who you are. <laughs> um, and you can actually get stuff done. In retrospect, you, that was probably the best time of my career because it was, you could actually do what you wanted to do. I, mean, I always joke, you could, you, I could die in my office and it would take them a week to figure out what I was <laughs> Right, but, but uh, you know, but it was, but that was how that early in the career, that's sort of what happened. And I took advantage of that to, to sort of develop my craft and my interests. And I got very interested, another serendipitous thing, I got very interested in lung fibrosis. And nobody at the time was really interested it very much across the country in that. Mm -hmm. But at, at Colorado, there were a couple of guys who were really interested in it. So I started working with them. So it all... You know, and was it the people that drew you toward it, or was there something about that set of diseases that you thought was particularly it, it, interesting? It was both. So what, what got me interested in it was a single patient that I saw who, um, who died, what turned out to be lupus pneumonitis. And she had been, quote, well until a week or two before she came to the hospital, and she died within a week of being in the hospital from, you know, ARDS, basically. Uh, it, was, it was diffuse alveolar damage is what we found at autopsy. So I got very interested in why did this happen? She was basically healthy. And, and a lot of what was left, what impressed me was she had five kids. They were all teenagers or younger. And I just remember being at her bedside thinking there was nothing we could do to help her. And I became interested in what is this disease? What, what is lupus? Why does it cause acute pneumonitis? And I said I wanted to do something to try to answer that. So we started by looking at immune complexes and immunologic reactions in the lungs. So that's what got me interested in, was basically that single patient made it really interesting. So just in terms of, we'll throw in a little career advice along the way, you framed a lot of your decisions as being serendipitous, this person left, this opportunity arose. Are you a, a fan of the five-year plan and 
figure, trying to figure out what direction you're going to go in and having a strategy to get there? Or do you think this is life? It's pretty serendipitous and you just kind of want to show up and be in the right place at the right time. Uh, I, so I'm a fan of both. But I, I, because I think you have to sort of think about where you want to go and be working to prepare. So, so, so you have to actually have thought through why you're doing it. Because there are really a lot of bad days. Um, and early on in your career, there are a lot of stressful days, a lot of bad days. So you have to have a true north that you're aiming for. So my true north at the time was I really did want to survive in academic medicine. I wanted to actually come out of the other end um, successful. So, so I, I had that as my goal. So then what does it take to do that? Well, a lot of it is hard work and a lot of it is sacrifice and just realizing that if you want this, this is, this is what it takes to get there. And I had, um, I was very fortunate that I, um, I, that I understood that I needed help and I, and I didn't shy away from asking for it. Um, and so right out of the gate, I ended up with three mentors who were very helpful to me in very different ways. And now I understand that they, you know, we talk about this, there's a, there's a whole literature on mentorship and whatever. And so, so I had the three kind of mentors people need. So I had uh, uh, someone who's close to me, cared about me, um, really wanted to, um, to see me succeed. And that was a guy named Marvin Swartz. He was, uh, he was a guy that hired me at the VA. So he was vested in me. He wanted me to succeed. He, he looked out for my welfare at the level of, you know, the job and, um, and um, supporting me financially on the job and negotiating my salary. And then the second mentor I had was um, a guy named Peter Henson, who was a PhD scientist. And so he, he was the person I talked to about science, and he, he read all of my grant applications. He read all of my papers. He helped me understand how to write and how to think through questions and um, and he was the kind of person that knew the answer, knew the question before I thought of it, right? So he would actually be very willing to, to help me and to work through. And he was, he was just super smart and um, easy to talk to and no nonsense. You know, this is what you need to do. And he was very straightforward. And the third person I had was a guy named Ruben Cherniak, who what I would call him now is my sponsor, so Ruben, at the end of the day, was the person who helped me when I wasn't there. So he was the person that was in the background telling people, well, why don't you look at Talmadge to head the, the new co clinic you want? He was the person, why don't you, you, know, why don't you talk to Talmadge about being the, you know, the vice chair of medicine? I mean, Ruben was the, in retrospect, all these guys sort of played a role, but he was the guy constantly talking to other people about, why don't you look Did at Did he see things in you that you didn't see yourself? Yes. I think he understood that I could do it. Mm -hmm. His strength was his ability to pick talent, mm -hmm. so he was very good at identifying talent, talented people, and he could recruit very good, talented people. And so I think he would, you know, he, he was, and he was, Tough. I mean, he was he was old school tough. Um, I think a lot of people today would actually accuse him of physical and mental abuse. <laughs> Not physical, but certainly. I mean, he was just really hard. I mean, the, the big joke about him was his, one of his friends was a guy named Whitey Thorbeck, um, who was from uh, Winnipeg, and I'm, 
I, w I was just starting to work for Ruben, um, and Whitey came to visit us, and he says, oh, Talmadge, I heard that you were working for Ruben. He says, he says it'll be okay. I'm like, it'll be okay, what are you talking about? He, said, he says, well, you know, his, his bark is worse than his bite. And he paused and he says, but you do know his bark is fatal. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so that was, uh, but he was, he was tough. I mean, the other thing he did. Do you think he was, really was? Or do you think that was a persona that he was putting on to drive people to be as good as they could be? It was, it was a persona. Yeah. So, and that's one of the things I figured out really early on, that he was, he was actually a sweetheart. But that, but this this veneer he put on was that he was this tough guy, yeah. and um, and if he really thought you had talent, he was. And Marvin Schwartz was the same. If he thought you were talented, he was on you like white on rice. I mean, he was, <laughs> he constantly was at you, and it was you know. And I I I I like walking down this hallway. If he was at that end, I'd run to the other elevator because the first <laughs> thing he would say is, "Where's the manuscript?" Where's the manuscript? Why isn't yeah. that paper done? Like, we just talked about it yesterday. I didn't work on it. Well, go back and work on it. <laughs> where's, where's the manuscript? My best thing that I did to him was he was at me about this paper. And we, we had to do some more experiments. So there was no manuscript. And so finally, he, we were in the elevator. And he's like, where's the manuscript? I was like, it's on your desk. And I stepped off the elevator, the door closed. <laughs> and he, he went upstairs, and he was looking all over his desk for the manuscript, and he's called his, his secretary, Peggy. Peggy, Talmadge said he left the manuscript there. And she's, Peggy said, Talmadge hasn't been up here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he called me, like, where's the manuscript? I said, you didn't find it? I said, I'll get it right to you. We'll, we'll, I'll get it to you. That's great. It's just on his, so you know. part of, a big part of your job, my job, too, is being a really good connoisseur of talent so what did you learn from him and what have you learned over the years as you try to make those judgments well first of all I, I realized that you have to have multiple kinds of people to, to make it work so there is no one there's no one thing that works and um, but I but but there's there are features about people that I highly value and the, and the first is that I really don't want jerks and you have to define jerk. But I, 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 you know, I, I, have, I have a low tolerance for people who kiss up and kick down. Um, and so if I see that, I actually have to really deal with it. And I just I have to break in. We had a memorial for Marv Schlesinger, who passed away as iconic leader here, was uh, chief of the VA for a very long time. And Bill Seaman said he's the only person he'd ever met who kicked up and kissed down, <laughs> meaning he was incredibly good to his people, and he did not shy away from having a fight with the yeah. with the, the the folks above him. It was a, a rare talent. Yeah, I mean, but I but, but you see those kinds of people, and yeah, and I so so I want so I try to pick people who 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 when I ask them the question, you know what you know for example. You know what what jazzes you up? What is it you really like, or why are you a doctor? And almost always, people say, you know, because I like working with people. When my next question is, well, give me an example. What? Tell me something you've done that can prove to me you actually care about people. Because if you you know you like working with people, and you, it's fascinating what people will tell you about uh, about it, and that can then guide you to thinking about really are they in this for the right reason. But I also realized that you have to actually 
hire a couple of people who are jerks because they're just flat out brilliant. Then you got to build a wall around them, right? <laughs> you you got you got to keep them away from the other people, right? Uh, but but let them do what they need to do because uh, an organization like this is huge. So you got to have all these kind of talented people. So is there like a quota there? If we don't have a jerk, we're we're, we're out there looking for one. Well, yeah, man, well, you know, if we if we can find if we if the decision is being a brilliant jerk and you know a mediocre, really nice person, I have to. So to deal with the jerk, right? And sort of deal with them. But, I, but I, yeah. yeah, and, and I, I look at, you know, there's leadership styles and, you know, I really want people who can play in the sandbox. So if I think I have to send you back to your mother for mediation, <laughs> well, I'm not doing that. You don't like that? Mm. Uh, so your decision to move out to San Francisco, so what even, how did you even learn that there was a job open at the county? So I, I was invited to give grand rounds, and the person that invited me was Phil Hopewell. Uh-huh. Unbeknownst to me, there was Phil Hopewell knew that the, there was an opening that, that um, uh, the chief at the time was stepping down. Um, so I didn't know it was a it was a dress rehearsal or, or you know he didn't tell a, you that he didn't tell he me that it was okay. about you know. But I got to give the talk, and sitting on the front row was Lee Goldman, and I'm like. So this is at the journal. So like, he was why, the chair. He was the chair. Like, here at the time. Why is Lee here? Why is Lee at the county? <laughs> well, that was, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, that was that was my that was my <laughs> was first good, sort of clue good, that good pickup. That yeah, you that that because uh, I wasn't that famous. Yeah, but, you know. So, <laughs> um, so I so I so that was that made me think that there was and that there was, and so Lee afterwards came and talked to me and called on the phone and asked if I was interested and I was not looking so it was. But then it turned. This is another serendipity. So then it turned out, the chief of Denver General and the chief of San Francisco General both stepped down at exactly the same time. And I was really happy at national. At national, I mean, I love National Jewish. Um, I still do. It was a great place to work, and it was a great place to work because of the people. And then the mission. The mission of the hospital was basically you could come there. You could really come there if you had no resources. So they really cared about taking care of under, un, vulnerable patients, people who were who had poor, poor, from poor backgrounds, um, and um, so it was a great place to work. So I wasn't looking, but the world was changing. I I thought I wanted to do. I could see that something was happening in in medicine, and I was at this very comfortable boutique, you know, research institute, and I said I should probably do something different. Uh, so, all these things sort of lined up at once. Were, were, the you, job make, were you making you say? Were you sort of forcing yourself to say that, or was it? Were no, you really feeling itchy? No, the world was changing, and, I, and actually, this is another one of these sort of sentinel events that, in retrospect, changed me. So we were we at National Jewish had decided to go meet with all the big insurance companies to offer them a product that we thought we could sell in terms of providing care to patients. So we were at Asthma Hospital, basically. And we were we thought we'd figured out how to take care of life threatening asthma, and basically life threatening asthma is anybody who's been hospitalized two or more times in the last year or two, they they pretty are at high risk for death from asthma, and we thought we'd figured out how to help those patients. So we actually put together this what we call the money money back guarantee that if you look through your patient population and you find this kind of person who had been hospitalized either come to the emergency room a number of times or been hospitalized a number of times. They fed our, they matched our picture for someone with high-risk asthma, high risk of death. 
that if you sent them to us, we would make them better, and we would guarantee you that if you didn't get back the cost of the care that they received in two years, we'd give you the money back. So it was a money-back guarantee that we would make them better. And we had the four big insurance companies in the room, and I remember sitting there coming to the conclusion that these guys were all full of it. They did not, they were all guys. They, they did not care about the, their policy holders. They only cared about the money. And so they were just maneuvering ways to figure out, you know, how to cut their costs. They didn't really sort of care about. Uh, and it was a series of meetings with, with these executives that led me to think that healthcare was really in trouble and that it was going to, things were going to change. And I thought the people who were vulnerable uh, in the community were going to be suffering. So I decided that I should get out of my comfort zone and actually join the fight. So I looked at, I looked at the Chief, the chair, chief job at the temp, at Denver General and San Francisco General simultaneously. And what did you like better about this? The, the San Francisco General job was an academic medical center in a public hospital. I mean, it really, they were interested in generating new knowledge about how to manage their patients, as opposed to Denver General, which was much more focused on just caring for patients. But it, when you came to San Francisco, you realized that the General was a place where there were actually people trying to answer critical questions about the people they were taking care of. So I wanted to be a part of that, that it was, it was really a place where outstanding people with an interest in solving the tough questions, and I wanted to be a part of that. So. And at the time, they were talking about the community health network, I don't know if you remember that, sure. and building this network of, of clinics in the, in the community with the hospital as a hub. I mean, that was an exciting time. Um, so let's fast forward to becoming dean. So you ran the department's uh, enterprise in San Francisco General. You were chair of this department for, uh, for a decade or so. Uh, anything surprise you about becoming dean? As you would think you would know the job reasonably well from being a department chair, but I'm sure there were some things that were different than what you expected. Yeah, so it's, uh, all the jobs are different than what you expect, right? I mean, I'm sure I could ask you the same thing about chair of medicine. It's not even close to what you'd expect. The first thing I noticed about the dean's job was when I was chair of medicine, I always wondered who was going to control the space. And they said, the dean. Right. So I became the dean, and I'm still wondering who's in control of space, because it's not me. Right? It's not you. <laughs> I think it's you, so, but it's not. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, and the it's, answer it's, is no one, right? Yeah, it's pretty much no, no one. one. I mean, I mean yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's this... It's, whole sort of thing out there. But just I think, for the house, Steph, when we're talking about space, it's laboratories for researchers, it's where faculty are going to sit, it's all that yeah. sort of stuff. It's not clinical space. Even that. Even clinical problem. space has yeah, its own yeah, issues. But yeah, it's, own a, issues. it's typically you're trying to hire a new person and figure out where they're going to sit, where their laboratory is going to be. And we don't have it, so I figure Talmadge has it. And it turns out yeah, you don't it's, either. It's, some, <laughs> it's, it's really hard. Um, I would say the biggest surprise to me was... Um, how big we were, and certainly this place, how, how big we had become, and how, how diffuse we were. So the day I sat down and realized we had 20 sites in the city and county of San Francisco, and you go to each one of those sites, there are 200-plus people there, that was unnerving to me. I mean, it was, it was just basically... And so I spent a lot of time the first year trying to figure out, well, how do you manage a an organization that's now diffuse, it's, it's sort of everywhere, and you're, you're, 
how do you handle you know, 14,000 employees? I mean, basically, it's a huge operation. So my, the first presentations I gave as dean were all about we are not who we think we are because we are much bigger than we think we are um, and, and bigger in number of people and bigger in dollars flowing through the system. You know, we're two, two and a half billion dollars, something like that operation. The school and then the school the of med- just the school of medicine. On top of it and the, and the health system is five billion. Yes, so six, it's seven billion dollars. Yeah, so, so it's just a, you're talking about a B. That's like, I've never dealt with budgets with that kind of number. Uh, and it's 28 departments and I have 40-something direct reports, so that was what's surprising, is how do, you, how do you handle all of these? We're still trying to figure out how to do it. And was your feeling that the, the kind of structure and governance and processes weren't built for that kind of size and complexity? Yeah, and people weren't, didn't understand that, that's, that yeah. we have that size and complexity, because everybody, everybody thinks that they're in charge and that they're that they're the most important piece of it. And yes, that's true, but you're part of this much bigger organism that has to work together for it to succeed. So as you came to that realization, what, what strategies flowed from that? Well, the first thing was to get the right team around you. Yeah. And so I actually, I feel you know, two and a half years into it, I have a great team. Um, and, that, and, and basically, knowing that I can't control pretty much anything, the team has to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So, so a lot of my responsibility is just to put the right people in place and then get out of their way. And so I think of myself as being, you know, we talk about this as an attending physician. As an attending physician, one of your jobs is a alert hovering. So you're not supposed to get there and be in the way, but you are at 30,000 feet, and you just got to know when to dive. Right, and so you have to be constantly watching, and, and and if you see something happening, you have to dive, and that yeah. and that's sort of how. But I even see it. just figuring out how to see something happening when there's oh, yeah. so much mischief that could be happening. Oh, you know, you know about these. mural dyslexia. Yeah. yeah, you can't see the handwriting in a wall because yeah. they've got your back to it. Right. I mean, it's. So. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's. Uh, that happens a lot, right? I mean, it's, and so you have to. And that's why the people around you are so critical, and we've been building a team that I think is fantastic. How do you deal with the sucking up piece? That, that, that Are you going to hear the truth from the people around you, or are they going to tell you everything's just fine? Um, I, well, first of all, you, you probably know me well. I don't. I do. I don't. <laughs> I am I am skeptical about sort of everything, I I, right? <laughs> so I don't. I in fact I think well, one of the very good one BS the, detector. That's, yeah. That's well, one important. of the things that I that I think has helped me in my in my career is that I don't believe the good things people tell me, and I don't believe the bad things people tell me. I know there's truth on both, right? So somewhere in between is where it is, and you have to. I spend my a lot of time talking to myself about staying calm and staying um, true to what I believe and, and, and not getting excited and not getting, not getting too exciting, not getting too sad. Just stay the course. This is a long, you know, this is a long road. And so, um, so you, you have to actually pace yourself and not, and not get worried. And I, you know, and I, I have come to learn to think my weaknesses no, the fact that I know them don't make doesn't make them <laughs> be better at it. <laughs> don't make me better. But I think I sort of understand my some of my weaknesses, and and I hope my team around me protects me from it. And 
And I definitely show my emotions. I don't even know how I do it, but I, you know, my kids can see it. They like what, what, Dad? And I'm like, what, what, Dad? And they're like, what's on your mind? Why, you know, why you, what, you know, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And I know it happened happened today. So I'm in a meeting. We had our huddle this morning. So I'm, I'm my my, uh, you know, key supporters are there. So, you know, Olivia Herbert and Mae Christman and Catherine Lucy are, you know, we meet daily to sort of set up things and and. Uh, May Christman looked at me and said, "You need to go for a walk." Wow! And I'm like, what? What? What's that about? Sure. She says, "Something's wrong. Basically, something's wrong with you. Get yourself together and come back in there after you go on for a was walk." Was she right? She was right. Yeah. And I and I told her what was on my mind. I'm yeah. like, "How can they read me so easily?" So that, that's been part of my another thing that I've learned early in life is that I I I, I try not to lie because I can't lie. Mm-hmm. Right. So. I, it, it's just so I just try to play everything as straight as yeah. possible because I realize I don't have a poker face. Yeah. You know, I, I, well, it's actually one of the yeah. things I think you're known yeah. for is authenticity, and I think that it comes yeah. it comes through. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that people know you for, at least the folks who work with you a lot, is uh, at meetings you often sit very quietly and then at the end ask a very probing question. Mm-hmm. Did, is that a style that you thought about, and is that intentional? I don't, uh, know, you, I don't, I don't know if you know you do that, but that's... Yeah, no, I, I, people have, I know I, I do it because some people are pretty annoyed by it. It's like, um, but, but I, well, first of all, I actually am comfortable listening to other people's ideas, right? So tell me what you're thinking, and I'm comfortable waiting to hear. I get very unhappy, you know, the UCSF way. It happens in conferences. First slide, the title is up. Somebody starts complaining about the title. <laughs> right? I mean, it happens. All he's like, "Why did you took that title? You know what? You know what? Why? Why is this talk about that?" Well, wait a minute. The next slide is going to explain <laughs> my goals and objectives. You know, people just start talking before they hear hear anything, and I, I I really don't like that. Let the person, you know, have an opportunity to share what they have been working on, and so I I'm willing to listen. Right and um, and a lot of people here just do not want to listen. They don't want to. They don't want to have, allow people to have that moment to just say what they're thinking. And, and I feel comfortable doing that. So that's one thing that I, I sort of believe in. A trait that I have. The other is, I actually think that I, because I'm willing to listen, I have, that I am actually I am comfortable learning what your viewpoint is. I do. I am not afraid to walk in your shoes for a while. Because I want to understand, well, where are you coming from? What, what are you, you know, what are you, my wife yells at me and says, I don't want to know what you're thinking. <laughs> I want you to do this. But, but, it, but, it is, but basically, I'm comfortable allowing you to tell me what you're thinking and where you want to go. And how, you know, because I realize we're going to now have a conversation about what is right. And we're going to try to do, we're going to, try, we're going to first ask, is it right? Will it, is it, is it the best thing for the most people? Will it, you know, can we actually accomplish it? And then what is it? What are we going to do? If we can answer those questions, then we, then we move on. I sit in a lot of meetings and I realize that what I, what I realize is that people will dance around sometimes the most obvious issue. And I always talk about the elephant in the room. People talk about it. I usually talk about the dead, smelly cat. 
me and the dead smelly cat sitting there right on the table and nobody, people act like it's not there. Yeah. It's like, so what's the dead smelly cat in this, in this, in this conversation? And I, and I will frequently, if it doesn't come up naturally, I will say, this is the dead smelly cat. You'll sometimes pick it up. And yeah, we <laughs> <laughs> wear it around. It's like, this is, so let's deal with the dead smelly cat. What is this? Why are we thinking of it? Why are we dancing around it? And usually that is the issue that people don't want to deal with. And if we dealt with it, we'd save a lot of time. We'd get to what the real issue is. We now, we now do the same thing. We call it an A3, right? We do, <laughs> we, we do, the, we do lean. We have, we have the lean methodology that we now use. It's basically the same thing. It's asking why five times. You know, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? So that you actually get to the, what, is the, yeah, what is the core issue here? And a lot of us just don't want to get there because sometimes it means work or it means changing your position or changing your philosophy or it costs you money. But we're going to have to get there somehow. So, um, but I realized that as being the dean, I actually have to talk. Some, I mean, I can't just... Sit there. Right? <laughs> so I do realize I have to. It's true. I, I have to talk. All right, let's throw it open. We have about ten minutes left to see if anybody has any questions. I'm Katie Ariam. I'm one of the chief residents right now here. Thank you for doing this. This is great. My question is about you. We're reflecting on how UCSF is larger than we realize that it is. And Dr. Walker, in the sort of state of the department talked about how looking forward probably UCSF as well as other healthcare systems are going to continue to try and get even bigger and I wondered if you could reflect on that and what challenges or opportunities you see with those changes yeah so it's a it's a people have the belief that the only way that that we will survive going forward is to be bigger and bigger I think there's a lot of truth in that but the the data that suggests that that may not actually work. I mean, if you just watch what has happened in, in, in industry where they get bigger and bigger and bigger and then all, then all of a sudden they implode, right? And they break it all apart again. Because there's, there's clearly a size at which you, you just can't lead it from one node. I mean, it, it has to be it's much better in a smaller node. So we in healthcare, we haven't found out what that is yet. But I think the concern right now is that on the, well, I have two views about that. On the health system side, I think we have to really grow um, to stay, to be competitive because it relates to the number of patients within your sphere of influence. I mean, that is the biggest thing is, do we have lives that we can take care of? And is it enough for us to run the business that we want to run? And that's the basis for a lot of the growth. On the education scientific side, we need to grow, but I think that growth has to be very strategic. I mean, it has to be based on what it is we're trying to accomplish, what questions are we trying to answer. So it's not just growth for growth's sake, but it's growth based on where we think science is going, where we think education is going, what, you know, what's needed. In education, how many more doctors do we need to train? How, you know, and and we, should, we should try to figure out ways of doing that. I think medical schools probably are at the natural size. I think when you get above like 220 in a medical school class, it's just too big. And so if you need another medical school, you should just open another one. So California probably needs three more medical schools, at least. Um, we, just un- we just have too few medical schools. But, but we should stay about 200 per class, and that's a, a size that we've found really works effectively because almost everybody in that class can know each other. 
and the people who work with them can know them. You know, and it, and it, it matches up with Dunbar's number, you know, that, that this, the hypothesis that none of us can know more than 150 to 200 people. I mean, know in the sense that we know their name, we know if they're married or not married, we know if they have children, we know something about them. It's around that number. So, so it seems like we have a size that we will stay as a medical school. The research community is really driven by the opportunities that exist to answer questions. And uh, again, I think that there's a size limit. If you look at our basic science community, it hasn't changed in 30 years in terms of its size. We have this huge operation, but the profet- there are about 120 professors in the departments of basic science, and that's c- close to the number it was in the 80s. So it has found its natural position, and what's changed around it is how they do their research. So they've added technological advances, so there are people who run you know, cryo-EMs and who run machines, but the people who are sitting there, the thought leaders, are about the same size. And I think it's because that size is a natural size that works for human beings to work together and to succeed. And so, um, but we, 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 I think if, you, if you're not growing, growing doesn't mean just growing in size, but growing in your ability to think of what it is you're going to do next, right? So you're, you're thinking of the next thing. It doesn't mean you have to now add 50 more people to do it. You may decrease 10 and add 20, you know, so you can do that work. So it's, or but may, you have to be keeping maybe it Maybe through forward. partnerships that aren't fully you anymore, it's you plus Yeah, somebody some else, yeah. And so I think we have to, we have to do that. But we, you know, we are, it's interesting when I came, when I became chair of medicine, uh, well, well, when I became dean, people would always talk about the good old days. Um, and, you know, the good old days, when I was like, what good old days are you talking about? Well, <laughs> and there were, there were two groups there. There was the people, the good old days group that go back to Holly Smith, who was the first chair, uh, who was the first major chair. You know, he sort of built this place. So we're thinking about the 60s and 70s. 60s and 70s. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there's the people talk to me all the time about Holly Smith this and Holly Smith that. Holly Smith had, you know, probably less than 150 total faculty. So he not only did he know everybody, everybody he knew their kids, their their spouses, that he knew their fathers and mothers. I mean, he knew everybody. You know, I have that many house officers, right? I mean, it, it was it's, so it's, it was it's just a very different world being chair of medicine today than it was then. And then there's the next group who remember UCSF as a place of like a you know of of 10,000 people, you know, uh, staff, faculty, the whole thing. And that's the 80s and 90s. And then, you know, we're, we're, we're UCSF, the big UCSF, on any given day, there are 30,000 people here. If you look at, include patients, there are up to 40,000 people flowing through UCSF on a daily basis. So we're a huge city, right? It's just a very different place. Um, and so it makes us have to think about and work together in a different way. But I feel very strongly that that way is, is small groups of people who know each other, work on what they do, and integrate and interact with other groups of people. So there are nodes of people working in, all, in multiple sites trying to do it. I think figuring out how to do that right is the challenge. How do we make that happen? So You've had so much success now as the dean, and I was wondering if you could just talk about a particular time when you had a failure and like how that shaped 
who you are and how? Um, so I, there, there have been lots of challenges along the way. Um, so a challenge that, that has stuck with me, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving off high school and Bob Hayes. That Bob Hayes race, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> but that, you know, that was, that was so much, that was just fun. And, I, and actually, and as, as time goes on, I think I beat him. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's just, it, it becomes a complete illusion. It's not true. Um, in fact, I, I probably should have started this conversation by having a disclaimer at the beginning that I, these are my memoirs, they're not my autobiography. Right, right. Yeah, because my, if my wife and my daughters were here, everything I said would be questioned. Sure. Right? So, it's, all, it's all a little airbrushed. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's really all airbrushed. But um, so my, my a sentinel event for me was when I was an introduction to the clinic at Harvard. So third year medical student took the introduction to the clinic, and I, um, and my, I got the lowest grade I ever got in my life from the introduction to the clinic. And the, and the comment was that, that basically I would never be a, the way I read it was I would never be a worthwhile doctor. They were surprised that I got into Harvard, and I would never be, um, I wouldn't amount to much. Um, and... So, in in retrospect, what I realized that did was, um, uh, it 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 made me wake up and reassess myself, um, like what, I mean, I, I was, t- you know, it was it was a it was a hurtful thing to to read in the in the comment section. Um, I had a whole bunch of issues with the particular instructor anyway. We, we, he and I didn't sort of hit it off very well. And one of my traits that you actually pointed out, I think, played into that because I was quiet. So I, I grew up in the South, and I was, I was yes sir, no sir. I spoke when spoken to, um, and he thought that that meant I was dull, and, and I think that's how that's how he took it, and um, and um, and and so that's why he he wrote. So that made me have to reassess. Well, how do I appear to others, and how should I approach this? And you know, I actually, I actually went about trying to change myself to make myself, you know, uh, uh, interact and, and appear differently. So, I like that commercial. I think is uh, Damian Lillard when asked, you know, what what do you what do you think about the critics? And he says, thanks for the motivation. You know, so th- that became really uh, great. There's an end to this story that makes me gives me warmth. <laughs> the end of the story is 25 years later, I get elected to an honorary society. And I'm at the table of the professor. <laughs> and so how did that happen? And so I, so we, and, and I, when I realized, and this is all things that happen in the background, I realized in the background, he asked to be at the table, wow. right? So he was very pleasant, and, um, and I, I think in his own way, he was saying, I don't even know if he remembered, but well, he, was, he, he, he was at the table, and I remember turning to him, and I said, I forgive you. And that's all I said. 
I, I said something. I forgive you and thanks, thanks for you know. And we never, we never said anything more, or whatever. And I just remember my wife was having a fit because <laughs> when I when I saw his name on the list, I'm like, what is this, you know? And then I, I, I said, no, that's the guy, you know. So, but that was, and now along the way, you have people say things to you that are that can get you down, and you know, that's that's why I told you I don't believe bad things are good things, I and mean, people say mean-spirited things to you. Um, and, you know, I, what I have said to myself is, and I say this all the time, almost every day, it, it, in some ways it makes my wife crazy, but when people do bad things, I make an immediate assessment, and that is, is that, is that malice or is it ignorance? And ignorance is rampant. I mean, just completely rampant. Malice is actually not very common. It exists, but you can't think that everything that happens is malice. So if I think it's malice, then I'm, I'm going to get you. <laughs> Some way, somehow, it might not be today, but I am going to make clear that that wasn't right. If it's ignorance, I decide, do I have time to deal with this fool or not? <laughs> And if I, or do I care about the fool or not? And if I care about the fool, I'm going to actually try to help them overcome, see it differently than the way they saw it. If, if not, I'm just going to walk away and hope somebody else will correct that ignorance in time. Well, that is a good note to end on. Thomas, yeah. thanks so much. Right. This is great. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.